0: Good morning. Hello. It's nice to see you all. Um, I'm starting to see parents come back from from dropping the kids off, so it felt like a good time to start. Do come and find your seats. If you missed me at the beginning, I'm Duncan. I lead Revelation Church. So good to be with you this morning and to see so many faces here. Um, In 2006, a phenomenon swept through the sixth form of Hinchinbrook School in Cambridgeshire or at least in the friendship group that I was part of. And that phenomenon was, has anyone heard of this? Any question answered. Did anybody, I'm seeing totally blank faces. (laughs) This was a text message service where you could text in with literally any question that you had and you would get an almost immediate response from somebody, so any question, like a factual question that had a definite answer or a future question of something that might happen, philosophical question that's been debated for centuries or uh, a personal question, like are Simon and Amanda gonna finally start dating in year 12? Any question and you would get a response back. And we absolutely loved it, because we are question-asking people, aren't we? You see it in our, in our um, it's kind of evolved, I suppose, into our searching habits now. This is way before the time of the internet being what it is now, and certainly before having it on your smartphones. Uh, but the way that we, we Google or we, we search on YouTube is now more, more than often they're not questions, rather than just individual words, isn't it? We expect to be able to ask questions and get answers back. Because to be human, is to have questions. And today, as we go on with part two of our Meeting Jesus series, in this series where we're going to see Jesus meet all kinds of different people. We see him meet rich people, poor people, men, women, Jew, Gentile, people that have a pulse, people that don't have a pulse. And in each and every circumstance, when these people meet Jesus, Jesus is able to come to them just as they are, and he is then able to help them see him exactly as he is and today we're going to meet a man called Nicodemus and really all he has as he comes to Jesus is questions and we're going to see how Jesus loves it when we come to him with questions and he loves it when we come with this this real humility of spirit before him just believing that as we come to Jesus he will have the answers that we need with the deepest questions of our hearts and as we do, he will open our eyes, he will help us see and reveal to us. Sometimes in challenging ways, sometimes that we might find uncomfortable, but he wants to lead us into the goodness of his kingdom. So we're going to look at John chapter 3 from verse 1. So do turn there if you've got a Bible. If you don't, do not worry at all. The words are going to appear on the screen behind me, you can read there. So 15 verses we're going to read. John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. In these first two verses, we read that Nicodemus, this man, he comes to Jesus by night. Now, this is a crucial bit of information that we are given. As one of the commentators on this passage says, the night is a time for doing whatever one wishes not to be known. And we might think, why on earth does Nicodemus want to be so shady about his visit to Jesus? Well, we see in verse 1, he is a Pharisee and he is a ruler. That is all we need to know about what this visit looks like and means for Nicodemus. He is essentially potentially pressing the self-destruct button on his entire career by coming to visit Jesus. He was part of one of the most powerful and influential groups of Jews at the time, the Pharisees. Now, this group of Pharisees, right from the offset, the beginning of Jesus appearing on the scene were opposed to who Jesus was and everything that he stood for. They made a point of separating themselves from him, looking upon him with suspicion, before then, as I said, starting to oppose him very actively, even then to the point shortly after that of plotting to kill Jesus. Put simply, Jesus was a sworn enemy of the Pharisees. And then at night, this one leading Pharisee, as we read in verse 1, a ruler of the Jews comes to meet him. It's hard for us to overstate, I think, just how much he stands to lose in this one visit. That as he comes and mixes with Jesus, the one that stands for everything that the Pharisees are against, overnight his career, all of his financial security, all of his friendship circles could come crashing to the ground. But yet he can't. Why does he come? Well, we read in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's seen something in Jesus. He's seen the signs that he does. I think there's, there's something about what you, you are performing and you are doing. They're undeniably something that we cannot just write off. The teaching that you have is not just good teaching, you know, quality sermons. This is wisdom that he's bringing, wisdom of a different order, wisdom that has come from God. Nicodemus knows all of the prevailing opinions of who Jesus is. The many thoughts that oh, he's just a madman. You you want to stay away from him, he's no good. Or he's a false teacher, he is intentionally trying to lead people astray. You have nothing to do with him. Or perhaps the most popular opinion would have been, here is just another one of those wannabe messiahs. I mean, we literally get about three of these a week, Nicodemus, just looking for attention, just pretending to be the one that's fulfilling all the prophecies. He's just, he just wants to get more Instagram followers. Just ignore him. He will go away. But there's something about that that doesn't ring true for Nicodemus. He knows there is something more. He is not going to allow other people to decide for him who this Jesus is. He's seen him around Jerusalem. He's seen what he does, what he says, how he is with people. And he is drawn into this man. I wonder if maybe that's why you are here today. That you you know what everyone says about Jesus. You know the prevailing opinion out in the world of who he is. But you want to see for yourself. You have heard, you have seen that perhaps this man is greater. That even if it's an unpopular opinion, or maybe even if it's a costly thing for you, like Nicodemus, you are coming seeking this morning. Because if you look carefully at this passage, that very much is the posture that Nicodemus has. He is coming seeking answers. We hear him speak three times in this passage. Verse 2 that we've just looked at, verse 4, verse 9. And while in verse 2 he doesn't technically ask a question, most of the commentators say basically it's implied in what he says. He's asking, who are you, Jesus? And then the other two verses, everything that he says is a direct question to Jesus. And it's interesting because he's the ruler. He's a teacher, we read in verse 10 he's not just a teacher. He is, verse 10, the teacher of Israel. It's likely that John is using this language because this guy was the leading theologian of the day. This guy was famous in very particular Jewish circles, but famous nonetheless. Famous for one thing, knowing all of the answers. Famous for, if you like, if you want to flip it the other way, famous for being the guy that never has any questions in any room because he's the guy that knows everything. And then he's here with this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Totally uneducated, not trained under anyone, let alone any of the big names that would command respect and that would be the types of people that Nicodemus would be uh, coming to discuss theology and, and talk about truth with. And here is the teacher of Israel, one of the most powerful men in the whole country. And yet when he is in the company of Jesus, he just knows, I am the one that is going to be asking questions here. I am doing the learning as I'm with this man. There is something about him that I need to submit to. He has something that I need to learn from. There is something that Jesus loves about us approaching him with questions. That coming, just as Nicodemus does here, in humility, genuinely seeking from him, wanting to learn. I think so often we can think, oh, to really have faith, I just never need to ask questions. I'm not allowed to ask questions. That what it means for me to have faith is to just blindly accept that which is taught, or to ignore any questions that might be bubbling up within me about, I'm not quite sure about that or to convince ourselves the things that we really can't quite work out in our hearts about the faith and what we see in the the world, those things don't really matter. We'll never have real, resilient, robust faith in God if we don't allow ourselves to ask these questions. Faith that can survive in this world will only come if we approach Jesus and bring with us all of our doubts, our uncertainties. The things that we haven't yet reconciled and aren't quite sure about in our hearts. And bring them all to Jesus. Jesus, I was praying and praying and praying. Why didn't you heal my sister? Jesus, there are hundreds of thousands of people dying. There's millions of people suffering in displaced. Why won't you intervene in the war? Jesus, I've been miserable for years and years and years, and everyone I see around me seems to be happy and flourishing. What is going on? You know, the scriptures, particularly the Psalms, they are filled with people, with believers, faithful believers in God, coming to God with the deepest questions of their heart and confronting him with them and saying, Why, God? Why is it like this? I don't understand. And Jesus, he welcomes us to do the same. And as Nicodemus comes this way, humble of heart, but full of questions, Jesus doesn't push him away, but he draws him in. He starts to open up the truth. In verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, for us, this is a phrase that we're familiar with being a born-again Christian. Probably all of us in this room have heard it, come across it. A phrase that we might be variously referring to someone who goes to church or someone who's a bit more serious, perhaps, about their faith, or maybe even somebody who's enthusiastic about their faith. Nicodemus, however, has not heard this phrase before, and he is incredulous. Verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus senses that Nicodemus might be just heading down the wrong track a little bit. And so verse 5 just pulls him back in and brings a bit of clarity and explanation and says, no, 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 no. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So he's bringing a bit of clarity to what what it means to be born again. This phrase, born of water and spirit, it's worth just thinking, what do you think Jesus is referring to when, when he says that? Born of water and spirit. You might think, maybe he's talking about baptism in water. That he's saying, they need, there needs to be a kind of a, an activity of being born through the water of baptism that Christians believe in, and there also needs to be an accompanying work of the Holy Spirit that goes alongside it. Or you might think, maybe he's talking about, when he's talking about being born of water, some kind of natural birth. You know, when, you, when a natural birth happens, there's a breaking of the waters. And so he's saying maybe you need to be born of water, so you need to you know, be alive in the world. But that's not enough to get you into the kingdom of God. There needs to be a second birth, if you like, in the things of the Spirit. Well, actually, almost certainly, Jesus is not referring to two separate things here. He's not saying you need to be born of water and you need to be born of the Spirit. But what he's saying, actually, is he's bringing it together as one thing and saying, you need to be born of the water and the Spirit. And in bringing these things together, what he's doing is he's referring to one of the most famous, unfulfilled prophecies that was over the Jewish people and that they were longing to see come to pass that we can find in Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll um, We'll read it together. So this is God speaking to his people and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That's the work of the water and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk In my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This prophecy spoken over God's people hundreds of years before Jesus is speaking here speaks of a new work that God wants to do among his people, to sprinkle them with water. And as we read there, cleansing them completely from all that they had done that was not right, making them the holy people that they had they had tried, but they had never been able to make themselves into. God says, I'm gonna do this for you. And then in the same movement, as well as the sprinkling of the water, he says, I'm going to put my spirit upon you and in you. I'm going to change your heart to be motivated to actually want to live my way and make you hungry for the things of me. And then I'm going to give you all the power that you need in order to live that life. And crucially, God says, I will do it. Do you notice six times in this passage, six times, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. God is saying, these days are not going to be about what my people can do for me. In these days, it's going to be about what God can do for his people. What God can do in his people and through his people as an act of God. I'm going to move among my people and I'm going to transform them. I'm going to put a new heart in them. I'm going to put a new spirit in them. And so as Jesus says, I want you to be born of water and spirit, he's saying to Nicodemus, these days are now. These, this day of water and spirit is upon you. And we see that this is the main thing that he wants Nicodemus to get hold of. In Three, ti- three times through this passage, in verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, he says, be born of the spirit. He's saying to Nicodemus, you need the spirit as he alludes to in verse 7, he's saying, God is on the move. The days of the flesh, they are over. It is no longer about what you, Nicodemus, ruler, Pharisee, great Jew, no longer about what you can do for God, but it is now about what God can do in you. And in verse 9, you can almost hear Nicodemus reeling at all of this truth that's starting to become apparent. As he says, how can these things the cogs are whirring in his head the implications of what is going on and this might mean are starting to become apparent to him if you listen very very carefully you can actually hear the sound of Nicodemus's mind blowing into a thousand pieces as he starts to see what's going on he thought he was just coming for a midnight chat with a controversial but clearly anointed by God, preacher, teacher that had arrived on the scene. Maybe, you know, kick a few ideas of the day around, like, what's your take on this hot-button issue? Maybe steal a few of his ideas for his next sermon, which preachers never, ever do, by the way. But what he got instead was this man. This man that he cannot, as much as he might want to, he cannot deny this man is from God. And he's announcing these days of water and spirit are here. And it is turning Nicodemus' world upside down. If there is one man who could rely on what he could do for God, it's this guy. One man whose whole life is built upon and fine tuned, purpose built to be living in the days of the flesh, it's this man. To rely on himself to get hold of all that God has in the future. He's the Pharisee. He's the ruler. He's the teacher of Israel. But Jesus is so clear. Now, unless, twice he says, unless you are born again or born of the Spirit, you cannot enter into or see the kingdom of God. Saying so those days, Nicodemus, they're gone. Now only by my Spirit. Jesus is standing before Nicodemus and he is opening wide the kingdom doors and saying, you can come right in. Come and be one of the first to get in on this, to be part of this next chapter that God is writing. Come and play your part in seeing the kingdom of God advance through the ages and go across the lands. But there is only one way in, one way that you can come. You need to be born again by my spirit. Just a moment, to consider what this actually means for Nicodemus. What does it mean for this man to be born again? Because, spoiler warning, it is not just, oh, Nicodemus, can you go and pray a nice little prayer over there? And once you've done that, you're in, and great, job done. What does it mean for this man to be born again? To this successful man who's done everything, accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish. This man of just about every gifting you could imagine, this guy who has essentially won in life's lottery. He's saying, I want you to be born again. I want you to start all over. I want you to let go of all that you have and go right back to being a beginner, being a rookie. I want you to learn to depend all over again, just like a baby. To this man, this ambitious man who had worked all of his life to get to exactly where he is now, to make himself into all that he wanted to be and had been entirely successful in that, who has, as I said, fine-tuned his own life to be the man that he wanted to be, who has controlled his own destiny, written his own story. He's saying, I want you to be born of water and spirit. I want you to allow God to completely transform you. Remember that Ezekiel prophecy. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You know, it doesn't really get much more transformative than that. I want you to let God take something out of you and put something in. The heart, the inner sense, at the, 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 the time understood to be the deepest level of your being. The very foundation of who you are as a person. I want you to allow God to take that out and put something new in fundamentally change you, yield to all that God wants to do in your life, completely Nicodemus. He came in such humility, trusting God with his questions, seeking out the answers to the problems of his heart. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that is the way that you enter in. That is how you come, in humility and trusting me, all the way to the point of trusting me with everything, even your heart. This is the claim that Jesus makes upon his people, to change our hearts and transform us completely. Because it sounds quite nice when you first read it, doesn't it? I'm going to have my heart of stone removed, heart of flesh put in. Nice little upgrade. That just sounds good, doesn't it? And one of those encouraging verses that you find in scripture, don't have to think too much about it, it just sounds good. But when you think about what it means, He's saying, I want to reach into the deepest part of who you are and be at work. Jesus is not just asking Nicodemus that he can work on the borders of his life. I want to be able to have some influence over where your career goes, please, Nicodemus. Or could I please be on the advisory council of how much time you spend gaming, please, Nicodemus. Or can I, let's, come on, come on, Nicodemus, let's have a chat about whether you have a gap here or not. Now he's saying to Nicodemus, everything. I want to be able to shape all of who you are. I want access, all areas. I want to come down to the deepest level. I want you to yield to me, to let me shape everything about the inner person that lives within, right down to your heart. This can sound really daunting to us. If I let God into there, who will I become? What will happen? It is a step of faith. There's no questioning that but we can be assured that we are not going to become completely different people and become people we do not want to be because actually he makes us into more of who we already are. This is what it means to be born of the water. He comes and he cleanses us. To be cleansed and purified. A purified version, if you like, of who you already are. Everything else that is not really us just washed away as we are born of the water. And then as we are cleansed and as we become purified from within, our heart actually starts to want the things of God, the things that are truly good for us, the things that are truly healthy. And then he says, oh, and I'm also going to birth you in the spirit and give you all of the power and the strength to actually choose the things in life that are good for you and the things that are healthy for you. That's something of what it looks like for us to say, God, come and I yield, work in me. That which we can never do in ourselves, he does in us. But only if we give him access. Jesus is not coming muscling into Nicodemus's life. It's Nicodemus that comes to him. Jesus doesn't say, you better get with the program, Nicodemus. This is definitely happening. Nothing you can really do about it. It is up to us to come to Jesus and say, I yield to you. I surrender. I trust you with everything, Jesus, even my heart. Would you move? This is what it really means to believe, to be believers in Jesus, to trust him with everything. And this is what Jesus emphasizes a few times in his final four verses. And it's where he finishes in verse 14 to 15. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus here is referring to a moment in Israel's history in Numbers 21, where venomous snakes are nipping around, biting around the ankles of God's people, and they're dying. And to save them, God says to Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it high. And if my people will not look at themselves, but look to that gold, uh, bronze serpent, if they look upon that, they will be saved, they will have life. How tempting it must have been for God's people as these snakes wriggled around their feet to think, we need to do something about this. We need to trust in ourselves and kick them away or if they get bitten, just think, surely what I need to do now is attend to my wound or you know maybe if we just club together and work together, we can work out how to destroy them or build a fort to escape the snakes or whatever it would be. But the only way to salvation, the only way to life was that they look upon the one who was lifted up. The only way they could be saved was to put all of their trust in that which was lifted up. And so must we. That as the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was lifted up upon the cross of his execution, it's through believing upon him that we enter into the kingdom of God. That when we see him lifted up, brutally murdered upon the cross, but lifted high, enthroned in glory that is the place where we are able to do what Jesus is asking here where we can surrender ourselves because as we see that he has given everything to us entrusted the whole of himself to us we are able to do likewise and say Jesus I want to give everything to you everything that I have is yours and beautifully, this kind of surrender is exactly what we see at the end of Nicodemus' story. The final time that he is mentioned in John's Gospel is in chapter 19, immediately having witnessed the death of Jesus. And he is found then not among the Pharisees, not among those cheering and celebrating and mocking, but this time we see Jesus, uh, Nicodemus in the light of day. We see him unashamed and unhidden among Jesus' disciples, mourning and weeping. And we see Nicodemus bringing perfume for Jesus' burial. And he brings an outrageous amount, an abundant amount, far more than is necessary or that you'd ever use for that purpose. As he has seen the Son of Man lifted up, he has seen him, he has believed upon him. And he's starting to surrender to him and just say, Jesus, everything that I have is yours. Let's follow Nicodemus. Let's be that kind of people. Could we have the band back? How we're going to finish this morning is I want to give us an opportunity to surrender ourselves before Jesus. We're going to sing a song through, um, which will be a helpful beginning to our response, I think, as a church family this morning. It's, it's a song of surrender, a song of giving our heart over to Jesus. And I know sometimes you can sort of sing a song and just be like, well, we're doing this until we do the next thing. I want us to try and as we sing this song, think about the words and as much as we can, be trying to mean it as we say, Jesus, I give you my heart. I'll give you, I can't remember the rest of the words, but very much I want to give myself over to you, Jesus. And then after that, I want to make an opportunity for us to come forward, if we, particularly if we're in a place where we feel like there is something within me, an area of my life I have not given over to Jesus. So I'll be back to explain what the response will look like. But could we stand as we get ready to sing this song? As I said, let's not see this song as just a time filler until the next thing. But let's sing this as our act of response and devotion to Jesus.